Like many of us who lived through the decade, I spent much of the 1980s vying hard for the title of worst haircut in America. My due was somewhere in between a helmet and a mullet. Looking back at those photos, it's astonishing to think my parents paid hard-earned cash to a knucklehead named Randy who made my hair look like that deliberately. Of course, this was the era when my brother and I routinely shot Roman candles at one another, and not just on the 4th of July. As a family, we went on outings in a banana yellow Cadillac to shoot crows in a public park with a pellet gun. In my spare time, I worked illegally as an underage minor at a video store where VHS had beaten out Betamax as the home video format of choice. Back then, Stallone and Schwarzenegger were the undisputed kings at the box office, and the former, in the role of John Rambo, inspired me to purchase a compound bow with razor-tipped arrows, which I once used to kill a speckled belly goose, and which we had stuffed by a taxidermist. Eventually, the goose was eaten by the rats in the attic, feathers and all. Now, admittedly, my childhood was bughouse crazy, but none of this seemed all that out of the ordinary back then. Meanwhile, in Vernon Township, New Jersey, Action Park became the hottest and most deadly amusement park around, luring teenagers from the greater tri-state area. The documentary film, Class Action Park, directed by Seth Porges and Chris Charles Scott, bottles up the madness of the times in 90 weird and wacky minutes. And inexplicably, the nuttiness of the 80s now seems quaint compared to the insanity we live in right now. So without further ado, I give you a conversation with director Seth Porges. Seth, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. Oh, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. So this is um, one of the striking things about this movie is it's this it turns into this almost weird love letter to the 80s, very conflicted in certain ways, but this kind of evocation of the way things were. And it that really resonated with me because I was, uh, you know, I had my own sort of like 80s weird childhood. And suddenly when we got to that portion of things, it kind of it hit me in a really interesting way setting out to, to do this, how much was that the intention and how much did you find that in the edit? What was, what was your path there? Yeah. You know, I, so I, I had a co-director in this project, my, my dear friend, Chris, and he's the one who really hit home. Like this isn't about an amusement park. This is about growing up in the 1980s. And from my perspective, I went to action park. Um, I knew the place was extraordinary, extraordinarily strange, but it still felt a little normal to me uh, because I was there. And he was the one who said, you know, I never went to Action Park. I, this wasn't my childhood. I'm not from New Jersey, but I went to my own Action Park. We would break into quarries. We would uh, build really stupid BMX ramps. We would go into mental hospitals. And he's the one who really saw the, I think, the universality of the 1980s experience just kind of condensed into this insane amusement park. It was a really fascinating insight, and it did, like, it, it, it does tend toward the universal in that regard, because anybody who lived through that period and that, like, complete anarchistic, like, lack of supervision, which was wonderful in so many ways and also kind of horrifying when it went wrong, I, I just thought that was a really smart take because almost always when you you, you start to make a film – 
there's this sort of surface level of what the what the movie is about or what the topic is or what your lens is focused on. And then at some point, there's that kind of revelation where the dime drops to you. Oh, this is about something much different than what I thought I was just aiming at on the surface. Um, very, 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 I thought that was very elegantly handled and very smart. And it really, it hit home to me, like I said. Yeah, well, thank you. That 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 means a lot. Uh, you know, it, it is the 1980s was a very strange time to grow up. And I think what we really wanted to capture, as you mentioned, was the conflicted feelings that many people who grew up in that generation have about their own childhoods. This idea that they simultane simultaneously, you know, look back with a sense of fondness, a sense of nostalgia, but would do anything in the world to keep their own kids from experiencing what they experienced. The insanity, um, I, right. The insanity. And one of the things we kept kind of saying to ourselves was that you never like never lose sight of the fact that nostalgia kind of has a survivorship bias, right? The people who look back at these things fondly are the ones who made it. And there's people who didn't make it. You know, like I, I'm sure you knew, I knew kids who did stupid things in the 1980s and are no longer with us today. So it's really easy for us, we're still here in 2023, to say that was awesome. Kids today, uh, they're weak or they're, they're wimps or whatever word you want to use. Uh, but when you look back at it, there, there was a real human toll to that upbringing. And I think there is obviously like a, a pendulum swing as people who grew up with that simultaneously smirk and laugh, um, often as a defense mechanism, I believe, at their own experiences but then will do anything they can to shield their kids from it. You know, one of the big mysteries, this is sort of a mystery story to us, which was why is it that yesteryear's latchkey kids are today's helicopter parents? And all we could kind of come up with is this idea, like they saw some stuff, right? They saw some stuff. Yeah, shit was bananas. And they're like, yeah. that was amazing. I'm glad I lived to tell the tale, but I don't want my kid to be the one who doesn't. Exactly, yes. Um, I thought you handled that. The way you navigated that in the film uh, was very elegant in the sense of it begins as this very kind of funny joyride uh, through the different – literal joyride in, in, in some sense, you know, through the different rides and through the kind of – this collection of anecdotes and sort of snapshots of the insanity. And then it makes this very um, – sharp but but um deftly handled turn toward the end when you start to deal with you know the story of the death and, and that first death and and kind of the the real human impact and i'm wondering how you when and how you decided to navigate that in terms of in the interview process did you always know you were going to shoot those interviews did you feel like okay we're going to need to like be able to switch gears at a certain point or was that something how did that how did that come to pass uh, in in many ways the structure of the film which features this rather sharp tonal shift about two-thirds of the way through the movie mirrored my own experiences uh, kind of coming to terms with the story of Action Park as I researched and reported and, and made this movie. Uh, you know, I went into it kind of with, I'll say, blinders on. Um, you know, I was really excited by the, uh, you know, exuberant joy that the park represented by the sense of possibility, the sense of creativity, the sense of freedom, the absurdity, and just the innately, objectively hilarious aspects of the park. And I think through that, I kind of, um, whether it was intentional or not, kind of lost sight 
of the fact that, oh, there was a real toll to this place. Like people actually got hurt and some people actually died. And I was sort of, not sort of, I was forced to confront that face to face when we interviewed Esther Larson and Brian Larson, the family members of a kid who was killed there. And in real time, I saw my view of the park just, I felt it shift within me. I felt it shift within my bones. And with that, I felt a sense of shame at the way I felt before. I felt this sense of kind of looking back at my own presumptions, my own feelings, uh, and reevaluating them in in very, very, very quick manner. This happened like very, very quickly, like in the room. And I felt it really important to uh, make the experience of watching the film as close as possible to what I experienced in that. Because I was so high off the fun of the park and the exuberance of the park that having that rug pulled out for me, I just had so much further to fall. And I thought that was a really important way of telling the complexity of the story while not losing track of the fact that to many people, this was the coolest, most kick-ass, most fun place in the world. But to others, it was the most tragic and sad place in the world. How can the same place coexist as both things? And that's sort of the question that kept me up at night. And what makes the, the story of Action Park, I think, so fascinating and so sticky and so worthy of conversation is that it's not cut and dry, that both of these things coexisted, perhaps coexisted for the same person within the span of, of just a minute or just a day, coexisted for me within a very short period of time. And finding a way to put viewers through that same journey of realization and confusion that I myself felt. Yeah, that's really well put. And, it, and I think it's very deftly handled in the film because you do, you know, it's this funny tightrope that we're walking as filmmakers, right? You have to suck people in. You have to give them the, you know, the joy and pleasure of the story along the way. And yet there is this tendency and you know, I have felt this in any number of films that I've made, whether it's in Night Stalker, where it's it, it it's this, you know, kind of, in some ways, a real-life horror film, and then all of a sudden you think about, oh, but what would it be like if you were a family member who had lost somebody you dearly loved? And that interview with Brian, I, I thought, was so particularly moving, because I'm incredibly close to, to my own brother, I mean, as, as many of us are with our siblings and it just you know it gutted me so unexpectedly to see the nakedness and vulnerability of his expression of sadness and pain at the at the loss of his brother and I thought that was it was just very beautifully done because it was unexpected in the best sense and and in a way inevitable right when you are trying to tell this complex story and I love the way that you said that that mirrored very much your own experience. In the room, you know, when you're conducting that interview or those interviews, how much did, how much of a shock was that to your system? And did, did you feel like, oh shit, I need to rethink my movie from the ground up? And, or, or, or what was that experience? No, it, it, it was something that I um, knew, logically speaking, we were facing. It was something we very consciously knew had to be, had to be included in the film. But it's very different to say it to yourself on paper and then to actually confront the people and talk to them and feel their experiences and feel that sort of radical empathy that's required in a room to get people to open up about what is the worst day of their life, the the, the most deepest, darkest traumas they've felt. And it's uh, and, you know, it, like there's a lot of reporting out there about Action Park prior to this that I think very much brushed aside 
this aspect of the story. It acknowledged it, but it would always be kind of like a throwaway line in the same way I myself and my own uh, internal narrative about Action Park had treated. Oh, that's just, that's just, you know, boys will be boys. That's is what it is. And, but actually feeling it and seeing it for myself was so very different. And for us, the entire point of the movie became then uh, expressing both of these aspects of the park, the good and the bad. And then realizing that that itself became, in many ways, uh, you know, the 80s distilled. This was the 80s, the good sitting right next to the bad, the excitement sitting right next to the tragedy. And it was, it, it didn't force us to reevaluate or change the film. It forced us to actually do what we knew we'd have to do the entire time. Right. It was it was the reckoning that you knew was coming in, in, in a fundamental sense. Well, I, I thought it was very, very deftly handled and very hard to do. You know, those tonal shifts, particularly when they're that significant, are it, it, it's it's they have to be handled very deftly or or you can lose an audience in some way or another. And I thought it was brilliant how you did it. Thank you. And th that became, you know, we probably spent more time on that like three minute shift than the rest of the movie combined almost. You know, I started looking towards uh, narrative films that I thought had been very effective in, in how they shifted tones. You know, movies like Bookie Nights and Something Wild and Psycho and kind of figuring out how do you use that tool in a way that um, doesn't lose the viewer, that feels deliberate, that feels effective and actually serves a real purpose. Um, and also in this case, you know, unlike those those narrative films, you know, you have real people here and the stakes are real if we mess it up, if we are somehow disrespectful to people who trusted us to tell their stories. That's always, 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 always on your mind at the same time. So uh, zoom out a little bit and rewind. Tell us the origin myth of, of this movie and kind of like when you when you when it first begins to be sort of a kernel in your mind and the process and path that you took to turn it into the film that it is. Yeah, I appreciate you call it an origin myth because I think to some degree when we tell these stories, they do. They, they they do it always become... becomes that. It always becomes that in some way. It becomes the, the story you tell again and again until until you start to believe it yourself. No, I I went to Action Park as a kid, but not much, just like a couple of times. And these memories just kind of implanted and seared themselves into my brain. I got older and I looked back and I thought to myself, that could not possibly have been real, right? There's no way I saw a water slide that went in a loop. There's no way I just saw fights and blood and violence and the sense of chaos and possibility and all of these things. Like, there's no way that was real. And you tell these stories to people and they would say, no, no, that's not real. That, like, you're making that up or you're misremembering it or maybe you're confusing reality with the itchy and scratchy land episode of The Simpsons or a comic book or whatever it might be until you yourself begin to really doubt your own memories. Um, and so from my perspective, this film really began as I took to fact check my own memories, to look back and figure out what was actually real, what was I misremembering, what was a myth, and what was real about Action Park. Once you start looking into Action Park, I was amazed at just like how little was out there in terms of journalism, in terms of actual reporting about the subject. There uh, are some kind of apocryphal, weird New Jersey articles that have been oft repeated until they kind of lose their meaning. There's a Wikipedia page that was endlessly entertaining, but very thinly sourced. Um, and it just kind of became very difficult for me to separate like what was real here? What's urban legend? What's actually real? And so I started you know, making phone calls and speaking to people. And it became very clear to me very quickly 
that it's all real. <laughs> you don't really need to make up things about Action Park. These stories that sound absolutely impossible, all of them, as far as I can tell, that I had heard happened in some form. In many cases, that was just sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more out there that had never been reported. And it was just such like, it's so exciting to, to do that. So like, you know, speak to people and realize like I'm getting stories that nobody's ever heard before. I'm hearing these incredible, incredible anecdotes that nobody has ever heard before. And so 2013, um, with some friends, I put together a, I wouldn't want to call it a documentary short, a web video about Action Park that went kind of viral. And a couple things happened as a result of that. One was my inbox just started filling with people telling me their own experiences, their own stories, offering to send me their home videos, their photos, whatever it is. It became very clear to me like this, there's more here. And oh my goodness, the story is much deeper than I ever could have imagined. And then something else happened. And that said, Johnny Knoxville saw that short and decided to make a movie called Action Point that was loosely inspired by the story of Action Park. Didn't really have much to do with the actual story, but you know, it was called Action Point. It's about a dangerous amusement park. You make the connection. And that movie uh, was a financial disappointment, to put it lightly. And so anytime I would meet with people about, hey, let's do a feature or some series, something about Action Park, the same thing would happen again and again and again, which is, this is a great story. Let me talk to my guy, my guy. And then eventually you'd hit that one person who would go, didn't that Johnny Knoxville movie crash? Like, wh why would we, I guess people don't like movies about action parks, you know, like that, that kind of Hollywood right. thinking. Right. Um, and it, the term I kind of came up with is like, in order to get anything made kind of through the systems, you have to climb what I call an unbroken chain of yeses. One person along the way for any reason at all, they're having Can a bad kick day, it out. says no. Kick out the ladder. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly. right. Exactly. You need to totally climb that ladder. And I knew that was never going to happen to the story because there's always going to be that guy who looked at the Johnny Knoxville movie and said, no. Right, no matter how high up you got, that was always going to happen. It became very clear that we kind of had to make it ourselves, was what that meant. And so Chris and I, we were just, you know, he lives in Las Vegas. I was out there for some reason. We were getting together, grabbing a drink, and we just kind of grab a napkin and just start sketching out like what would it take for us to make this movie ourselves? And we were shooting it a month later and done a year later. And it was one of those things where we really started filming without having too much of a plan. You know, we, we drove a van from Las Vegas with a two-person crew and a whole lot of gear to New Jersey and just started figuring out who can we talk to if we just hit the ground. Things were not thoroughly planned out. It was very seat of our pants, but that's when the real magic happens. That's when you end up in the attics and you find the dusty VHS tapes. That's when you bump into the person who's like, oh, I've got stories for you. That's when it happened. And it really was just a lot of on-the-ground unplanned serendipity and reporting that kind of made the film possible. And that's one of the great joys of documentary filmmaking, particularly that which is sort of outside of the system proper, right? That improvisational free form, you know, one crazy caper leads to the next. Um, did you guys know how many days you were going to shoot or was it like, hey, it's just us. We're going to sort of follow, chase this and follow it wherever it goes. And because, you know, we're self-financing it, we're able to kind of flow wherever we want. Or what was the game plan starting out? Yeah, you know, we we had our crew for a, you know, they have lives, they have families, whatever. It was Chris and I and two other people. Chris and I were, you know, we would have been there for months shooting if we, we were able to. But they, you know, we you have to understand the demands that it takes to film things. So we didn't have that long and we just really packed it in. Uh, we spent a lot of time without the crew, I think, just kind of putting together the other pieces. Like begging people to look through their attics to find tapes, right? 
like like there are people telling me, you know, we have these audio recordings of Gene in a film, and that came from uh, Jesse, the newspaper editor who's in the film, just kind of offhandedly saying, you know, I used to record my phone calls with Gene. I'm like, can I can I have those? Where are those? And she's like, right, well, I haven't amazing. seen them in twenty. <laughs> yeah, they're in a, they're in an attic somewhere. I'm like, now I want them now, and just showing up again and again until. She handed over these uh, mini cassettes, and then you have then you realize how difficult it is to find a player to play mini cassettes. On indeed, these days. indeed. <laughs> um, and uh, it was just a lot of that. I mean, it was serendipity. A lot of the home movies, some of the photos came in shockingly late in the game. I mean, there's this one photo in the film of this uh, teenage girl just showing off her alpine slide injuries and she is beaming and she is smiling and it so perfectly illustrates what some of our our characters are saying about this like sense of pride this badge of honor that these injuries would become and this photo came in i think 10 days before the movie came out you know and it's just like it's 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 amazing the like last minute over the transom like oh the thing i've been asking about for a year now here it is i'll take it yeah it, it's like a stop the presses moment. Like, we got it. Stop the presses. Stop the presses. Let's slot it in there. And that happened just, like, again and again and again. I mean, the movie itself, like, you know, movies are never done if you have unlimited time. Like, you could just keep polishing that stone again and again and again. But truly, like, the form, the film you all saw was maybe, like, a done a week before it came out in that sense. And we ended up playing just a couple festivals the week leading up to the release. And the sound mix wasn't done on those because it was that, like, late in the game, all of this stuff just started coming in. Talk about co-directing and sort of division of duties and the the process of working with somebody in that very intimate way and, and, and the nature of the collaboration. Yeah, Chris, who's still a friend, which I think says a lot about both him and I after uh, direct, directing a film together, uh, you know, he, he and I, I think, come into this with, with this specific project with very different perspectives. From his perspective, it's the outsider who was not familiar with the story. And it's like, what is it that speaks to him? What feels universal? What does he want to know more about? And for me, it, I came into it with that kind of obsessive encyclopedic uh, years and years and years of research mindset and and making sure that we kind of balance both of those. Because there, you know, if I had just done this myself, maybe it got too geeky. Who knows, right? It would have been a, a very different film. And he's also the one, who, again, who I said, who really, I think, identified the universality of Action Park as a stand-in for growing up in the 1980s. And, you know, when we when we do this together, uh, it, we are we've known each other for so long and our relationship is such that we, uh, I don't think there's much ego at, at play here, which obviously can become an issue when you're co-directing. Uh, for us, it was a matter of who does it make sense for one of us to lead the interview? And then when does it make sense for us to pass it along? And we just kind of do that. And then once we move into post, uh, we became a little bit more divided uh, in terms of how we handled things where we, you know, he kind of helped build, he, he led the initial assembly and then I led the uh, let's make this a, a movie we can all watch kind of phase of it. How we'll Talk about the editorial process and, and sort of, you know, when you begin, how clear the plan is, um, achieving the tone. Did you have references that you, you guys watched together and said, OK, we're playing in this key so that everybody said, you know, making the same movie. Talk about talk about the edit. Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning of starting to actually piece together what we had, I we all knew it's like we, like th- there's there's two movies here. Let's make them coexist and let's make them speak to each other. Let's create a conversation between these two movies. And 
I I really initially wanted tonal drop to be as absolutely steep as possible, as sharp, as abrupt, as everything as possible, in the most kind of non-commercial way, I'll say. Uh, and, and you know, I, I had a vision of just people absolutely bawling with laughter one moment and then crying 10 seconds later. I, I'm kind of evil in that way. That That was sort of my initial thing. And then once you actually put that on screen, you realize, okay, you need to ease people into it a little bit. Uh, and then I became very, very interested in that process. And like, you know, watching a cut with a couple of people, I noticed something very, very interesting. And that's that everybody stops laughing at a different moment, right? And the sense of realization as people realize it's no longer funny and they're still laughing a little bit. It's like the embers of their laugh are still there. And they're, they're beginning to question, wait, should I still be laughing? Is it bad taste? Why do I still find this funny? And then they all realize, no, this is no longer funny. And just the petering off, that to me became just so, so fascinating, kind of uh, seeing how different people kind of stopped laughing at different moments and realized that the film had changed at slightly different moments. And to us, that became the whole thing about the movie was making that, that fulcrum work. And so are you doing, you know, test screenings with small groups of people and sort of titrating it accordingly based on what those reactions are? Or, how, you know, how much are you showing along the way and when? Yeah, I mean, by by that, I mean, like our closest friends and, and, inner and partners. Yeah, this was I mean, we were finishing up post of this in the darkest days of the pandemic. We weren't getting together large groups of people. And I never saw this at a theater until, you know, a year or so after it came out. And that was a really magical experience for me. Uh, you know, we ended up playing, I think, like three film festivals the week before it came out. One of them was in Florida. So, of course, they played in the theater in August 2020 because that's what Florida is. And I was zoomed into the theater and it was really cool to see this theater full of people watching it and kind of hearing from them the response. And that's the first time anybody really had seen it. We didn't do test screenings of any real you know, sort. And just like you know, the one guy like, did you guys like it? <laughs> like, I hope you do. I like this. Um, and I was, you know, it, it's very, it's, it's such a nervous moment uh, to kind of walk into at that point. And talk about the path that leads you to H, uh, the the final distribution, HBO Max, and, and sort of the, you know, how it ends up coming into the world from being something that you're working on uh, sort of, you know, in, in a smaller unit to actually injecting this into the world. Illuminate that path for us. Yeah, it really is, uh, I, I think, such an such a wonderful experience for, from my perspective because it is one of those stories where we self-produced and self-financed this film with no money and just like us and our friends, and it ends up on a major streamer, and in doing so, it truly changes my life and Chris's life. And and that's you know you don't you hear you think those stories might exist, but you don't always hear them. And um and that was that was really just profound and really really awesome. And for our perspective, I think it's a challenge that a lot of filmmakers have, which is I'm making a movie, I think it's good. How can I get anybody to notice it and pay attention to it or take it seriously or want it or look at it or whatever it is? There's so much noise out there. And um, and so, you know, we released a trailer, a teaser when the film wasn't done, didn't have any distribution. And Action Park is just one of those topics where people just kind of, you know, want to talk about it. They love it. And so we put this trailer out and people posted it they spread it around a little bit and then the new york times called ended up doing like a two or three thousand word feature on our story on our on our movie that wasn't done and didn't have distribution i remember the reporter calling me 
confused why his editor was assigning him this story because we don't typically write about movies that aren't done in distribution. Um, but it ended up on the Metro page was what it was. It became kind of a story about this conflicting legacy of this New York era institution in the New York Times Metro page. And once that happened, well, it was out there, right? And, you know, people were calling us up. And uh, HBO Max was the right platform at the right time in every way. It was brand new at that time. We were one of the very first kind of original projects that they had. And it was really great because it really allowed us to, uh, you know, they they cared, right? Like they didn't have a zillion projects out there. They put effort into us. They cared about us. They listened to us. Um, they put it in their TV ads. You know, it was really great to be there with this like brand new streamer as part of their not quite launch lineup, but almost. And what what's what state was the film in at that point? When you know when they enter, how much of it is cut? How far along are you? Talk us through that. Yeah, the movie was. I mean, there was a cut of the film, uh, but there's a lot of differences between that cut and the final cut, all of which I believe are positive. I mean, the execs at HBO Max truly are great. I mean, the folks I worked with aren't there anymore, but they were just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful executives who really understood what we were doing and didn't try to make it something it wasn't. I can imagine if this had ended up at some other places, it would have just become the first half of the movie, right? And because that's the easier, more marketable part to deal with. And they didn't try to do that to us. They were really, really just great to work with. Uh, I think the biggest difference between what we brought them and what ended up on the platform is the addition of the narration. And oftentimes I think as a filmmaker, somebody says, add a narrator, you just go, right, you don't want that. But I did, I really, really did. And it solved so many problems for us um, in terms of just getting that information out there. Because when you're a filmmaker, you're working with, when you're a documentary filmmaker, you're working with what people tell you on camera. And finding a way to string together a 15 or 20 year narrative where some of that connected tissue just may not be there. Um, the narration became so, so key and so, so important to us. And in John Hodgman, we found, I think, the perfect voice uh, that really came, you know, was the voice of the film. Like, he, I think he was born to do this narration, this role. And I had heard that he had gone to Action Park as a kid. And the second I heard that, we're like, do we want a narrator? I'm like, yes, we want one. And yes, it's going to be John Hodgman. Um, and I, I mean, he should have been nominated for every narrator award there is. Honestly, he did such a great job. And talk about the writing of that, the writing of the voiceover. Like as, as you're in there, how much are you adjusting along the way? How close do you get, you know, out of the gate? How much rewriting is there? Talk about that process. Yeah, I wrote the narration in one afternoon. <laughs> I mean, and by that point, it was just so, so clear what we needed and how it had to be and what it had to say. I mean, it was like at that point it was slated like we just like slates like we need this we need this we need that it was just very very late in the game we knew exactly what we were missing exactly what we needed exactly the length it needed to be and uh you know we we had more narration recorded than we ended up using of course you want to make sure you better have it than not have it uh you know we kind of trimmed it down quite a bit but it was a really simple and straightforward process because you know we weren't writing this film from scratch at that point we had a film and we knew what connective tissue needed to exist to tell the story. Okay, so that brings me very organically to my next question, which is you, you have this assembly of kind of anecdotes, I suppose, in some fundamental way at the beginning. Like the big 
narrative piece of it or the, the sort of like driving story point, most of which happens at the end, right? The reveal of the death and the unexposed, unexpected kind of uh, deep emotional reaction and connection that you get to that. But when you're in the process of putting it together and you're, you have these disparate elements, so it's like, okay, this guy's funny as hell. That's, he's a great storyteller. But how does this tie to this? Like, talk about the organizing principles that you're using to structure it, whether it be individual rides themselves and kind of building that map out and how you came to it. Yeah, it, you know, it's amazing how little that ended up changing from even before production, sort of the initial outline and plan we had. Uh, you know, I knew the story inside and out. I knew the topics. I knew the rides. I knew many of the anecdotes already because I, you know, these people reach out to me like, I got to talk about this, right? Um, I knew I knew a lot of these things. And so I actually just before our interview today dug up sort of my very, very early outline I'm looking at it, I'm like, it's really, really close to what the film That's amazing. ended up yeah, ended up being. You even have this one line where it goes, tone changes here. It just says, amazing, so amazing. Is, is one line. And even like the last shot I knew, um, you know, we had like, how do, do we open on an animation? Do we open on kind of an archival montage? Those are some questions we still hadn't figured out. But the actual like run of show was really, really similar. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of, I think, discrete segments in this film that were pretty easy for us to move around until that flow just became evident, right? Right. And a lot it of that- It was modular, like, essentially, so yes. you can rebuild them, reassemble them, and w once it's flowing, you can feel the flow. Yeah, and what was really important was to make sure it kind of always as much as possible tied back to the story of Gene as this person, because the story of Action Park is interesting, and in you know, every, of course, movie needs to have a character who you can latch onto, and the story of Action Park became interesting in the sense that Action Park itself became a manifestation of Gene as a person. The story of Action Park is the story of Gene, and vice versa, and making sure as much as possible that these anecdotes, these things that feel like tangents, these like one-off little episodic moments, as much as possible, tell the story of Gene Mulvihill, the creator of Action Park and this uh, Synecdoche New York creation he made of this, of this amusement park in New Jersey. Uh, but it ended up being, I think, more modular than I even expected. There was a flow that just, you know, it wasn't obvious, but once it was there, we all felt it. We we're like, okay, you could, you could is, tell this is what it wants yes. to be. This well, is it's what it wants to be. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really good point that you bring up in terms of tying it to character and tying it to Gene because he also kind of embodies both sides of that 80s thing, which you articulate very beautifully in the film, right? That, that kind of, you know, the freedom to do whatever the hell you want, the like id of the 80s in, in a fundamental sense. And yet also, too, you have that very... Um, unexpected reveal to vis-a-vis -vis the journalist and her sort of changing or complex feelings towards him, you know, toward the end of her life as their relationship builds. But I guess all of this ties back to, in a fundamental sense, what you're talking about, which is this is a both-and film, not an either-or film. That is to say, it's, the, it's that sort of cognitive dissonance in a fundamental way that gives you both sides of it. Yeah, and I, I think we were actively, I mean, that was that was sort of our line in the sand. We didn't want a movie that would give you easy answers because life doesn't have easy answers. Uh, somebody like Gene doesn't give you easy answers. He did things that are objectively horrific and terrifying. He also did things that were nice. He was a family man. He had friends. People loved him. He made jobs. Like, there's, there is this complexity. There's three sides to every story. There's, you know, he is somebody who has defenders and he has haters. 
And I think different people can watch this film and draw drastically different conclusions about what kind of person he was and what kind of place Action Park was. And I think that's important because, you know, I, you always dream of the movie where people walk away from it and they're talking about it. They're not, they're, it's not given to them super easily because we ourselves as filmmakers and hopefully as viewers uh, don't, it's not a story about a serial killer where you're like, that's a bad guy, right? It's not that easy. And pretending it's that easy is is a cop-out. It really, really is a cop-out. And understanding that gray area, understanding that duality, understanding that complexity then becomes what the movie becomes about in whole. So my last question for you, which is um, about your decision to be both on-camera interview subject and, you know, co-director of the film. And when you decide to shoot that interview and... Um, what your what the challenges of being on both sides of the lens are and the advantages of being on both sides of the lens. Yeah, I didn't want to be in the movie. Uh, Chris really, really pushed. He's like, Seth, you got to do it. And the fact was, as a journalist, I knew more about the story than almost anybody did. Um, and it's, it's like, if I was making this film um, and there was that journalist who knew that much, I'd want to talk to them, is really what it was. I'd want to make sure I interviewed them. And uh, the initial, and, and the truth is, if we had had a narrator from the start, I probably wouldn't have been in the film at all. Uh, you know, the interview was done kind of to serve in many ways as that connective tissue for a lot of these things, because I knew the things that needed to be said in this film. And uh, a lot of my lines were cut once you put the narration in. There's a couple that kind of stuck around. Uh, I kind of wish all of them were gone, truthfully. <laughs> you know, I, um, but the truth was that I had spent years reporting on this story and knew it in such a way that I had a perspective that I think was important to, to be in the film. Yeah, it was, I thought, very um, smartly handled. And I like, you know, particularly your deep personal connection to the story <clears throat> and the length of time that you spent reporting it. I was wondering if you had shot that late in the game or whether it was something that you had done early. Where in the interview sort of like, was yours one of the final interviews that were shot or how and when did you decide to do it? It was the, fi it was the final interview from our initial production. Uh, we, we ended up doing a couple pickup interviews that I think added, oh my gosh, so much color to the film, truly. I think some of our best interviews were like very, 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 very late in the game. This guy just called me. We have to stop everything and make sure we get this guy in camera kind of interviews. Uh, and as those came in and as our narration came in, the need for me to speak dwindled. Um, there's, you know, again, there's some lines in there still, but uh you know, had, had we known who we were going to have from the get and that we would have a narrator, I probably wouldn't have interviewed, had that interview at all, honestly. Well, it's so great to see a doc that makes you laugh and, you know, to have that kind of joyful spirit to it, but also has this complexity to it. And I really appreciate, like, it's, it's, it's in many ways, like I said, you know, starting out, it reminds me of the range and malleability of the documentary as a medium. And I love just that, that touchstone of kind of broken barbed love letter to, to, to 80s movies. And I think you did just a, just a, just a brilliant job um adding your contribution to the canon of those 80s movies that that, mean, that means a lot it, it it really does um thank you you know we we set out to make a movie that made us feel something good and bad hopefully and it's been amazing realizing that we're not alone in that sense that it also works in other people i mean it's kind of amazing when you when you are editing a film and you watch the same footage a thousand million gazillion times 
and it still makes you feel something, I think you know you're onto something right. I mean, it's so easy to become so numb at your own movie, just the repetition and the amount of time it takes to finish a film where you kind of lose sight at like why this may have been impactful, how this might affect people, what feelings this might create, whether it might make you laugh or not. You can't laugh at something you've seen a thousand times, the humor's gone, right? And no matter how many times we watch the film, no matter how many times we edit, no matter how many cuts we made, no matter how much time we spent in the edit room, I still felt something every single time. And uh, and that, that's how I knew it was like, okay, this maybe this won't be a bad movie. <laughs> you know, maybe this won't be a bad movie. But you never know until other people see it because you yourself, your perception is just so warped by that point. Is the truth. But you have to trust those instincts, right? I mean, that's yeah. what brought you there to begin with. And that and that's what and that's what served you at the end. And that's why I think we all feel something, whether it's the humor or the pathos or the combination of the two. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Really well done, Seth. Great to meet you. Appreciate your time. You too, man. Great to, great to be here. Thank you to Seth Porges for making this crazy film and for sharing your time about the making of it. And thank you to his co-director, Chris Charles Scott. And thank you to Sly. And thank you to Arnold. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production produced by Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk, Graham Tracy, and James Carroll. It's distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler through Double Elvis Productions. Thank you for listening.